I'm David A. Wheeler, and you are listening to The Change Log. Welcome back, everyone. This is The Change Log, and I'm your host, Adam Stachowiak. This is episode 215, and today on the show, Jared and I are talking to David A. Wheeler. He's from the Core Infrastructure Initiative, and specifically, we talked about the CII Best Practices Badge Program. We talked about what this program is, where it came from, who thought of it, who developed it, why Heartbleed inspired it. We also talked about why you should get certified and what certification means. We had two sponsors today on the show, Linode and TopTal first sponsor of the show is our friends at Linode, cloud server of choice here at Changelog. Head to linode.com slash changelog. Use our promo code changelog20 for a $20 credit. And all you've got to do is pick a plan, pick a distro, and pick a location. Get an SSD server running in seconds. Plan sort of just 10 bucks a month. Head to linode.com slash changelog. And now on to the show. All right, Jerry, we're here with David A. Wheeler. Now, the A in the middle there is, is pretty important because if you search for David Wheeler, what do you find? Probably a whole bunch of folks. A whole bunch of folks. <laughs> so I'm happy to, to, to talk to people as David. It's just I use my middle initial so people can find me later. Gotcha. You know, like most good shows for us is uh, came from a ping. And this is actually from David himself. So how did this kind of give us a breakdown of what this ping was all about? Well, actually, I've been listening to the change log for some time. So, uh, you know, um, I'm working on this project called the uh, Best Practices uh, Badging Project for the CII. We'll, I'm sure we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, and uh, so, hey, you know, who would be interested in this? And, oh, man, I bet a lot of people listening to the change log would want to hear about this. So I contacted you guys, and here we are. You got lots of energy, David. I like that, man. You come on a show like this, and... You go on pinging like who do, who best to tell my story with than the change log? That's awesome. Oh, hey, you're welcome. I uh, I, I enjoy listening to you guys, so uh, thanks for having me on. I love it too. Uh, in the pre-show, David mentioned that he listens to our podcast, but he listens to us at two point four x, which is just crazy fast. And so I'm having a hard time keeping up with you, David. Uh, yeah, I have to slow you down a little bit. I don't know. Yeah, maybe that's why he's got so much energy because he's he's a two point four listener. <laughs> he wants to get a word in. <laughs> <laughs> that's well, kind of funny it's more because there's a lot of good stuff out there and it's uh it's kind of a fire hose to keep up so i do what i can uh you know i try to speed it by reading speed it by listening so i can keep up well from our perspective we saw that ping and we'll tell you david not very often does people ping us about themselves and get on the show i think you're number two the first one i believe was evan yo or evan you with ujs he pinged us asking to be on and uh his ping was quite impressive. And so he said, yeah, come on on. Lots of times people are pinging about other projects. In your case, I wasn't quite sure about the CII best practices badge as a topic until I started hearing our friend Daniel Stenberg blog about it on a repeated basis and trying to get curl certified. So that certified this topic to me. And we're really uh, glad to have you on the show. Oh, thanks. And, uh, you know, he was very, very instrumental. He was one of the early uh, people who reviewed it and uh, provided a whole lot of uh, comments. Um, so, and and Curl does have the badge. We'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk more in a sec, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, so we really appreciate that. Very cool. Well, as you know, as a listener, before we dive into the topics, we like to dive into the history of our guests a little bit and just mm-hmm. hear where you're coming from. So uh, if you had an origin story to tell, uh, could you share it with us? Sure. Although my origin story is a little uh, odd in some points. Um, my first computer was actually in my middle school. Uh, they had a, uh, a, an ancient PDP eight, mm-hmm. which had, uh, six, uh, bytes, uh, total memory, uh, and, uh, a front and a literal front panel. Um, but as soon as I got, uh, as soon as I got to use that thing, I was hooked. I loved computers and have loved them ever since. Um, a little later on, I ended up with an Apple II and just studied the heck out of it. Um, I, I, I think there was probably a time when I could have rebuilt it from transistors because I thought it was incredibly amazing that you could do this thing called programming. Uh, and ever since, I've been working very much on anything relating to you know, computers. How can we make software? How can we make software better? Uh, I've been doing 
really what since the 90s a lot of work relating specifically to either uh to, to open source software and i've been doing security even before that so i'm really really interested in open source software i'm really interested in security and uh that kind of uh brings i think you uh up to date kind of where my interests are one of the uh, interesting bits i pulled out of your bio which caught my eye uh, was this line about the scepter of goth so you oh, said yeah. that in the in the 80s you were the maintainer of the scepter of goth yep. which is the first commercial multiplayer role-playing game in the u.s and perhaps in the entire world can you unpack that for us and give us some details sure um uh, you're you're pulling that way back machine uh yeah way way back um you know, uh, I don't know if you remember Adventure and Zork and that sort of thing, but they were these text-based games you could type back and forth to each other. But not, no, sorry, not back and forth to each other, but you know, type in you know, get thing, drop thing, kill troll, right? Uh, and uh, basically, a uh, number of some folks had the idea of, well, this would be cool as a multiplayer game. You know, this is back when modems were just coming off, becoming available, and that sort of thing. And so uh, I was part of a company which basically ran as a franchise, mm. uh, this uh, Scepter of Goth thing, where um, basically people would log in with their modems and they could uh, work with other people, uh, choose various characters. If you're familiar with D&D, uh, you've got the right idea. So, you know, choose your character. Over time, you get experience, you level up. Uh, a whole lot of mechanisms that now look kind of normal and everyday and lots of systems use it. But it was kind of challenging the first time, you know, gee, nobody's ever done a multiplayer role-playing game before. Uh, how do you do this? Yeah. And uh, we had all sorts of, of, of weird problems uh, making that work. Um, but uh, it was also, it was a lot of fun. Wow. Actually, interesting. When I just reading it, I assume it's mid-80s. And it's a multiplayer, so it must have been a card game or a one of those book games where it reads to you, you know, it reads out the the scenarios. But this oh, is no. actually this is actually a digital online experience for people. Oh, absolutely! Go talk to the bartender and that sort of thing. Now, the computers that we had at the time were really pathetic. Um, you know, we were running these out of an uh, you know eight oh eight six with four point seven seven megahertz running 16, 16 users. Um, so we had to do a lot of tricks, but one of the big tricks we didn't it, uh, always tell is that uh, well, you uh, some people, the dungeon masters, could quietly show up and pretend to be some of the characters, and all of a sudden that bartender had amazing AI, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, you know it, it only took a few times for people to be very impressed by that. But but even when they weren't on, you know, you could run around, go go get the monsters, go try to find the uh, sharkies. Uh, uh, to go buy your stuff, uh, who's always getting shut down and moved somewhere else. Um, and, uh, you know, people had a lot of fun with that. People still contact me about that. You know, it's, of course, long since obsolete, people moved on. Uh, but it was uh, kind of a cool, cool experience at the time. I'm curious about the maintainer side of that. You know, I mean, if that's part of your origin story, at least, it, it's not <laughs> what you said. It's something Jared brought up from your bio, but it's in there for a reason, right? Uh, what's it like to maintain that? Uh, <laughs> I remember one night where I was drinking, I think it was my second big gulp jolt at three in the morning, trying <laughs> to fix some nasty, horrible bug. Um, it was all in C, heavily optimized um, with all sorts of special um, optimizations to try to coax out of these really slow, low memory machines, the kind of performance necessary. Um, but uh, and I remember spending days uh, optimizing one particular command, the follow command. But it was the it was the way that you managed to get groups together. So it was really important to get right. And the number of edge cases were ridiculous. Things like, well, wait a minute, you may be following someone who's invisible, so other people can't see him, and then a monster may be following you, and what you know, just all sorts of crazy edge cases that you had to deal with. Wow, uh, I'm th I'm think that uh, that Jolt is still involved in your system right now because. <laughs> Three big gulp jolts. Those things were actually outlawed, I believe, in certain states because they had so much caffeine. Oh, I, I, I remember my hands vibrating on the keyboard after one of those. So, That's but, a fun you know, story. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, you know, we had fun. Um, there are other stories we could tell sometime. But uh, you know, after, after that, they said, you know, maybe I ought to do something else. So. Yeah. So uh, up to modern day where you're involved with this best practices badge program, which is a 
Core Infrastructure Initiative, which is part of the Linux Foundation. So a couple of, uh, you know, moving objects here we like to kind of define and nail down, and especially your relationship with these organizations, if you're gainfully employed or running it or it's a volunteer thing, give us the rundown on kind of the players involved in this situation. Sure. Okay. So let me pull out the baseball cards here so we can identify who's who. Uh, I think a lot of your listeners were probably already familiar with the Linux Foundation. Right. Uh, they employ somebody called Linus Torvalds. You may have heard of him, some other folks. Uh, they actually run a whole lot of projects, uh, including the Linux uh, kernel as far as funding it and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, a couple of years ago, well, two years ago, Heartbleed came out. Uh, big vulnerability in OpenSSL. And uh, the Linux Foundation looked and said, wow, that's, you know, A, that's a problem, but B, that's a symptom of a bigger problem. What can we do to fix that problem? So they established this thing called the Core Infrastructure Initiative. And yet it's, it's not a very clear name, but the idea behind it is actually very clear. It's basically, can we identify the software that's important and find ways to use to, to uh, improve things so that the software that we all depend on is more secure and better shape and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And they've actually funded some specific projects. For example, they've actually put money into OpenSSL. They've put money into several other projects, um, basically trying to identify some of the you know, key software, really important. We need to make sure that stuff is more solid than it is uh, in, in cases where there's an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that immediately became clear is there is no way they can fund everything. So they're also interested in some projects that can kind of raise all boats, as, as it were. And that's where this best practices badge comes in. The, the idea is, hey, um, there are clearly some practices that are generally accepted as these are things you should be doing, but it doesn't mean everybody's actually doing them. Mm-hmm. So can we come up with a list of here's the criteria that's generally accepted. This is what open source software projects should do. And then. You know, if you actually are doing them, you can you get a little badge. And that, of course, helps users figure out, you know, hey, is my project okay or not? Is this project I'm planning to depend on? Is it in decent shape or, you know, kind of doing the basics or not? And it also helps projects because most people involved in projects, they want to do the right stuff. But it's not always obvious when you're trying to fix some specific bug. Oh, wait a minute. You, you've got a, a basic problem here. Uh, with your project. Mm-hmm. So it kind of helps them also figure out, well, what, what are the basics that need doing? When we talk about the core infrastructure initiative, you said that they raise funds. And uh, if you look at the, the homepage, there's quite a big, quite a list of tech companies that are providing funding for this. Oh, yeah. uh, Amazon, Google, Facebook, all the big players, IBM, yep. um, Microsoft, so on and so forth. And a lot of uh, industry-leading security experts as well. You have Bruce Schneier, Dan Kaminsky, Alan Cox, and so on and so forth. So are these, are these people paid as advisors? Are they like employees of this? I just like to know the kind of how these things fit together. Yeah. Um, some of the stuff, there's probably other people who might be able to better answer all of that than I would. Sure. Because I, I focus more on the, the badging and census work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that said... Um, Basically, what's, what happened is that each of those companies that you mentioned have kicked in funds, either to the Linux Foundation or, you know, if you're looking at the CII list, that's all the folks who have kicked in money specifically for the core infrastructure initiative. Hey, we all depend on these programs, mm-hmm. but, uh, and, and we want to make sure that they're healthy. If we put money together, um, then, you know, by collaborating together with the funding, we can help make those projects uh, more healthy, better and so on. And, you know, and they and everybody else reaps the benefits as far as, you know, who gets, who gets paid and so on. Um, I mean, uh, let's see the, uh, Linux foundation itself is something called a 501 C six, um, which is basically an industry, con- uh, not a, it's a nonprofit industry consortium. So um, some of the people that you mentioned there, they're actually employees of other companies mm-hmm. and they basically provide some time to, um, they're funded by those companies to help oversee, to make sure this, the Linux Foundation, the CII are you know, on track, doing the best, uh, the best they can. Um, and they certainly do direct, but they also provide great advice. Because uh, lots of people, of course, have been around in the industry for a long time, uh, helping make sure that we uh, get good things going. Um, but then the Linux Foundation and CII itself have employees. 
I'm actually not an employee of the Linux Foundation. Uh, if you want to follow the money stuff, I'm actually an employee of a nonprofit of a different nonprofit company contracted to the Linux Foundation. Huh. But the Linux Foundation actually reached out to me because I've been interested in open source and security uh, really since the early '90s. So I've been doing this stuff for a long time. And when they when when they said, "Hey, who do we know that's really interested?" And has done a lot of background work on open source and security. Uh, apparently, I was on their their short list. They reached out and said, "Oh man, this would be awesome. Uh, let's make it happen." And so that's what we did. So, what do you do from day to day? Then, what's what's kind of give us a lay of the land? Of what's a typical day of open source security role for you? Oh, it kind of depends on uh, what what I'm doing uh, on the particular projects I'm working on. But since we're talking about um, uh, let me talk about the two projects for the CII I've been working on. One was the census project. One of the first things they need to do is figure out, well, wait a minute, who should we send money to? And so I actually uh, whipped up relatively quickly an effort to quantitatively evaluate projects. Uh, I'm sure you can appreciate that that's really hard to do. Um, and it's particularly hard when you, all the different programming languages that exist out there. So we basically identified some metrics that we could use that would at least give us some indications of risk. Uh, scored a whole bunch of projects and helped identify some of the projects that were really important and had real concerns. And I don't think it'll be terribly surprising that some of the ones we identified include things like OpenSSL, uh, the Network Time Protocol daemon, um, and you know various other things that everybody depends on. They're really important, but for various reasons, uh, there were reasons to be concerned about the project. So, um, and in fact, that's, you know, since that time, they, they took that data. Now that wasn't supposed to just give them the answer. It was supposed to help them make a decision, but, and that's what they did. And, uh, that seemed to have been really, really helpful. And I'm hoping to, I, I'm planning to go back and do a round two of that soon yeah. for the badging project. Uh, again, it's the, you know, Hey, we've got this idea We're you know, can we identify the criteria and help projects, uh, decide you know determine they meet them or not if so they get a badge and so um you know i i'm actually the project lead so uh you know so i'm I'm basically the guy who grabbed information from all over talked to everybody came up with draft criteria i I should note that the badging project and actually the census project themselves are both open source software projects uh so you know we've got mailing lists we've got a github location uh all the codes available uh, MIT license in both cases for the code. So basically, you know, we came up with drafts and then had, you know, begged for feedback from lots of folks. Uh, and you mentioned uh, curl is one thing. I, I I probably should give uh, shout outs for more people than I can easily remember. Uh, so my apologies for all I missed. But you know, Greg KH from the uh, Linux kernel and lots of other folks actually provided some really great feedback. Mm. Um, and I, I should also uh, quickly note uh, Carl Fogel who uh, wrote uh, the book, Producing Open Source Software. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the criteria actually derived from his book, and he actually reviewed it and gave us some great feedback. So, um, you know, basically, we, we, we did our best to gather the information and then, you know, put it out to the community to review, comment on, critique, and improve. Yeah, very cool. We'll cut you off there for a split second, David, for a break. Uh, we do have actually a little bit of a cross-reference there. You mentioned Carl Fogel. Fogel, he is our very first guest on our brand new show, which just launched with Nadia Ekbal and Michael Rogers. It's called Request for Commits, or RFC for short. He's actually the guest on the first two episodes that show all about sustainability, community, the business side of open source, all those cool things. So if you're listening and you find that interesting, check out rfc.fm and we'll take a quick break. David, on the other side, I do have a quick question for you since you've been around for so long. Uh, in the open source community, you you have this term floss, and then we have this other term OS or OSS. And it seems like depending on how long people have been around, they may use one, they may use the other. I like to get your take on that. But we're going to take a quick break, and we'll talk about that as well as all the details on the badging program after this. This message is for all those team leaders out there that are looking to easily add new developers and new designers to their team easily scale up when you need to you got a big push coming you got a new area of the product you've got to go into and you've got more need than you thought you could you've got to go through all this hassle of putting a job out there and hiring people to find the right people well that's a bunch of hard stuff that you don't need to even deal with call upon my friends at top that's t-o-p 
T-A-L.com. The cool thing about TopTal is that you can hire the top 3% of freelance software developers and designers. And what that means is they've got a rigorous screening process to identify the best. So when you call upon them to help you place the right kind of people into your team, then you know you're calling upon the best people out there. Once again, go to TopTal.com. That's T-O-P-T-A-L.com. Or if you'd like a personal introduction, email me, adam at changelove.com. And now back to the show. All right, we are back with David A. Wheeler talking about all things best practices, open source, free, Libre, open source software. David, I have a question for you about these terms. So it kind of just seems like it depends on when you come into the open source ecosystem is kind of a, a, a smell or a tell, depending on if you say floss or if you say OS or OSS or open source. And I've noticed on your bio and stuff, you have the FLOSS. Um, and you also mentioned that you've you know, been into it since the 90s. So curious your take on that and the, the change in terms and the acronyms and does it really matter? And what's it all mean, David? What's it all mean? Well, I'm not sure I can completely answer what it, what's it all mean. <laughs> well, come on. But, um, yeah, so I mean, this really comes back to uh, a uh, a split you know, a long time back. Uh, the term "free software" was used for quite some time in, uh, to describe software where you know you can use it, you can modify it, for, you right. can use it for any purpose. You can modify it, you can redistribute it, modified or unmodified without constraints like royalties. We're talking about the Free Software Foundation in that case, right? Richard Stallman and the Free Software Foundation. That's right, the Free Software Foundation, for example. Uh, I think they were established, I think it was 84, I believe. And that's the terminology that they used. Um, I mean, this kind of software existed even before that. It didn't always have a name. The problem with the word phrase free software is what they meant was freedom, but nobody gets freedom. Uh, they, they assume free software means no price. So um, uh, a number of people many years ago declared, hey, why don't we use this term? Why don't we create a new term? And they came up with open source software. So that was a second term. The problem is that uh, most, pe- most people, I think, use the phrase open source software, but not everybody. Uh, there's a number of folks who in, uh, insist on using free software, and typically they're emphasizing a difference in motivation, where they're emphasizing um, the purpose of making the software as an ethical reason, not just, sim- not just an engineering reason. Mm. Uh, that's not always true. Some people use the phrase open source software and having uh, an ethical undertone to it. Sometimes, sometimes people use free software in its original meaning. Uh, I most of the times when I'm writing or talking, I'm not usually emphasizing the motivations. I'm emphasizing the rights that you have right. use the software. So then you have the problem of well, one group calls it X open source software, another calls it free software. Well, what you know, and in fact, there's another group that wanted to call it Libra software. So mm-hmm. gee, what do I do? Um, so when I was started writing about this stuff, in order to try to cover everybody, I started to use the phrase free Libra open source software, which is free FLOSS. Um, there doesn't seem to be any way to make absolutely everybody happy anyway. <laughs> um, but uh, that was, that's been my attempt um, trying to cover, you know, hey, for a lot of this stuff, it doesn't matter what your motivations are. In fact, mm-hmm. people's motivations differ uh, depending on projects and even over time. So trying to, use, you know, that, that phrase is often used trying to cover a waterfront of reasons and motivations. Uh, that's it. I'm, I'm happy to use the phrase open source software. I'm happy to sure. use the phrase freely for open source software. Um, in all cases, we're talking about the same set of rights, uh, though people have different motivations for why they do it. Yeah. Seems like we have a kind of a standard case of naming things as hard and operator overloading and you know the, the similar problems we come into when we're actually writing the software is when we're talking about things and names mean different things to different people at different times and so you have kind of this stew of different words that we use in terms right and of course it's perfectly okay for people to say here's our particular motivation and here's why uh right. that's fine uh but it makes it makes life complicated when you're trying to talk about something um when motivate the motivations behind it aren't currently what you're focusing on at the moment um you know maybe for some other things but a lot of times what i'm writing about is not the motivations but the results in fact there's even a recent movement to to introduce even a new nomenclature because the you know os open source versus free software is so troubled 
And it reminded me that XKCD, um, where the one about, uh, not protocols, is it protocols? Where there's too many protocols? Yes, yeah, so we're going to uh, add one other one, yes. Yeah, we're going to add, you know, we're going to introduce <laughs> gonna one add, more. There, and we're gonna, there are now 15 protocols, and there were 14 or something like that. Exactly, like, let's create yep. one to rule them all, and then you just added another one to the mix. And Yep, so I remember the cartoon, yes. Yeah. I'm glad we asked this question because I don't know if it if it requires the deep dive, but it, we're camping on it for a second at least. But um, it always feels like to me like maybe floss is I really hate to say this like this, but it just kind of feels old hat and uncool. Whereas open source software OSS feels like new hat, cool new hotness kind of thing, and it almost is a divide of like old school open source and new school open source. And that's to me as an out you know as somebody like who just as an observer, obviously, we have all these years. It seems like that's the the uh, the term that divides. Yeah, I'm, I I uh, I think that's an. I don't think that's a good way to look at it, actually, because uh, frankly, uh, floss and open source software are actually from the same time period. Yeah, um, and I I do do want to respect the folks who have a very very specific agenda. I don't necessarily agree with it, but uh, you know, I don't want to uh, downgrade or or make it sound as if i'm not disrespecting their their goals yeah not at all that's not what i'm trying to do at all by saying that you know i'm not saying that's the truth i'm saying that seems like an observation of how it's perceived right and and i think the uh i I think one challenge is that the phrase free is i mean i actually complained to richard stallman back in the 80s you know it's a stupid word uh because everyone knows what free means it means no price and uh he insisted on it anyway um and uh, I think, you know, and, and all the confusion that caused that came later was because he, you know, I think you noted earlier, naming's hard. Right. Uh, I totally agree. But it's also important because you only have so many words and uh, <laughs> you've got to, you got to try to do the best you can to make things clear. And I don't think that word free is actually helped. I think it's actually impeded communication. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. At the same time, you know, other words also are problematic, like open. Open is another word, right. you know, especially when we start talking about uh, when we get into products and Android is open, you know, I- iOS is closed and it's like what that means and now what's open yeah. to you and what's open to me is different. So, yeah, these are the things that, you know, we need to be talking about and coming to as much as we can, you know, uh, where we can understand what each other means mm-hmm. and not just arguing about the words, but trying to overcome those subjectiveness. So, yep. It's interesting for sure. And I think Adam, Adam's point perhaps casts it a little bit differently. Not that people who say floss are old school and lame, or I don't know what you, exactly what you said, Adam, but... I did say lame. Okay, I threw that one in there. No, uh, so it's like people who've come into open source software more recently, they don't have necessarily the history. They don't, that, the term right. floss is less used nowadays, not because it's lame or old, but I think because... The even the scenario that you just laid out for us, I don't may may have never been laid out even on the change log. Um, and so that's just like a lack of historical knowledge of like right. the terms and their use. So, oh, well, it's it's a general problem. I mean, people right. aren't aware of the history of a lot of this stuff. Um, and of course, and I actually am interested in history, both computer history and general history. And I, you know, there are reasons things happen in a certain way, and I think it's often helpful to know why that is because, frankly, it makes it a lot easier to understand the now when you understand where it came from. Yeah. Uh, and there's that old phrase, you know, you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat it. My gosh, how many times have people repeated the same stupid mistakes in computers because they aren't aware that, yeah, that's been done before. Here's why that didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. Just a quick uh, plug for somebody else's podcast on the topic because it's so topical. Uh, the Curious Minds podcast recently did a two-part series about the Free Software Foundation, the Open Source Initiative, he actually got Richard Stallman to interview, uh, which I thought at first I was mad because we've never had him. But then I, I, I listened to it and heard all of the stuff he had to go through to get him to agree. And I realized we're never going to have him on the show. Um, it's a really good two part series. It talks all about the words and the, the divide, the ideal ideologies and all those things. So I would submit that to the listeners. Check out Curious Minds and just look for the open source ones. But let's get back to you. Uh, David, and your initiative with the best practices badge, you've given the overview. Let's get back to that initial reason behind the core core infrastructure initiative, the heart bleed, uh, the security problems, and just reiterate for us and tell us maybe exactly uh, the genesis story of the best practices badge program. Well, 
probably a good place as any is the Hartley vulnerability, which is a vulnerability in OpenSSL. And, you know, initially one of the big problems was, you know, uh, it's a, it was a really bad vulnerability in OpenSSL. Um, and OpenSSL is used all over. Uh, one of the side, side problems is a lot of people weren't even realizing that they had OpenSSL in there. So it was a, it was a big effort. Once the vulnerability was found, there was a, this huge effort to figure out, oh, wait a minute, what do I update? Well, everything. Oh, what? And so it really had you know, bad vulnerability, big impact. But then when people started drilling in a little further, uh, they realized, you know, hey, lots of programs, even projects with, that are well-run with very, uh, very, very conscientious people, lots of people, lots of resources, lots of everything, uh, doing everything right, you can still make a mistake. But the problem with OpenSSL was that it wasn't just this one vulnerability that suddenly cast a light on this is really an important project. But in fact, there's only two people working on it part time. They are um, there's a lot of things they aren't doing that really should be doing, um, and it's actually surprising that more vulnerabilities hadn't slipped out. Um, but uh, and you know when people started to investigate it further, they, you know we you know. It, it, this is a problem, and in fact, you can look around and find other programs that you know don't don't do things. That in fact, you ask them, "Well, gee, shouldn't you do that?" Well, yeah, I haven't gotten around to that yet. So, um, you know, so basically, that's kind of the gen one of the genesis of these this badge program is, "Hey, what can we do to kind of raise the boats for lots of projects uh, and identifying those?" Um, we came up with a number of different criteria. Um, let's see if I. Uh, there's actually uh, 66 criteria, basically, after looking at what do people do. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, um, it turns out that the open SSL folks weren't doing about a third of them. You know, the, kind of the basic stuff that you're supposed to be doing, they weren't doing. And that led to, well, frankly, a lot of problems. And, you know, give us uh, a for instance, like give us like top five. You know, what are some things, some easy ones? Yeah. You know what? Let me, I, I'll tell you what, instead of just, what I can do is if I go to the bestpractices.coreinfrastructure.org site, mm -hmm. uh, that's basically the, uh, the the web application where uh, that has the badging and so on. And hey, go there and you can get yourself a badge. If you do go to the projects page and look up OpenSSL, you'll find there's actually two entries for it. There's current OpenSSL, and I'm happy to stay, say that they actually have a badge now. But we went back and said, hey, what's this? what was the status of them? Um, and uh, one of the members of the OpenSSL team went back and tried to fill in, you know, uh, what, what, what were they not doing? And um, so basically, they, they didn't have very clear information on how to contribute the software on the site. Um, they didn't have very, they didn't have information on, well, what, you know, to contribute, what are the, what are the requirements for contributions? Um, you know, they weren't putting out the intermediate forms uh, of, uh, to the public for people to review before it became the official version. They didn't have a, 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 a officially published, you know, here is how you report vulnerabilities. They had a general bug report, but it wasn't immediately obvious if that's how you were supposed to send in vulnerability reports or not. Um, the, uh, you know, they didn't in general add new tests when they added new functionality. You'd think that would be a, hey, I added a new uh, crypto algorithm, let's make sure that we add you know, tests for that. Well, sometimes. <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> Not so much. Um, and, uh, you know, they weren't enabling compiler warning flags and other things and, and, you know, trying to find the, basically using lots of tools to find problems before uh, it got out the door. Uh, and that's just a, um, just a, a few of the problems. Um, and, you know, hmm. that's a, you know, sure, even a well-run project, you can make a mistake that gets out. But these are the kinds of things where, you know, no. When you, you not only should have a test suite, but you should be improving it as you add new functionality. You should have, tell people how to report vulnerabilities uh, and that sort of thing. So that's kind of the, the uh, and that's kind of the level of, you know, mm -hmm. you get the question, gee, what do these criteria look like? It's those kinds of things. You know, it's the, you know, Where's you know, where's your repo? Where's your project page? Which could be the same. You know, do you have version control? Do you have an issue tracker? And you'd be shocked to know that there are open source projects that people depend on that don't have these kinds of basics 
that help them, you know, keep their project in uh, under control and help them focus on the problems and fix things before the users have to suffer with them. Maybe I'll take a moment and talk about the badge itself. Sure. Since we, maybe we haven't, I, I can't remember if we've given that context or not, but I want to go the whole show without saying like, we're talking about an actual badge in terms of something that you'd put on your GitHub readme or on your project website, like a little that's image it. that's just like, what is it? AdamShields.io or badges.io. That's what we're talking about. That's exactly right. I think um, Shields merged with badges, but yeah, right, I think you're yeah. right though. Yeah, and ours looks. You know, ours is actually from Shields IO. You know, in, in terms of the look and so on. Uh-huh. And basically, if you stick that on, it'll say CII best practices and either in progress with the percentage, or if you get 100, percent you get a passing 100. percent Congratulations. Right. Um, and uh, we have a scoring mechanism. There's a couple criteria which are not actually strictly speaking required. Um, you know, there's sh- there shoulds. You can not do them, but you got to justify it or you know, suggested where, okay, you, you don't have to do it, but we want you to think about that and make sure you tell us whether or not you actually do those or not. Uh, and then basically we score out your, um, you know, all your musts and, and shoulds and suggesteds. And, uh, if you get a hundred percent, congratulations, you've got a badge. Have you found the badge? So developers love badges uh i remember coder wall was very popular people like to have little things that show off what they've done but have you found that to be a significant enough motivation um to have people submitting their projects to you know to get a badge yes um people have made changes to their projects in order to get a badge um and and you know what's, what's sad is that some of the things that people are doing are well it's not sad it's kind of the point uh, you know, it's, are the kinds of things you think about, well, wait a minute, shouldn't you have done that already? Well, yes, but here it is now. Um, people have created test suites. People have, you know, uh, found ways to implement HTTPS. People have uh, reported, hey, here's how to report vulnerabilities. I, I, by the way, I should note that these are some of the more common problems uh, in getting a badge is, you know, they may tell you how to report bugs. But it's not obvious when you want to report a vulnerability if you're supposed to use the same process or not. Um, it's fine if you if you want to use the same process, just make it really clear. Uh, that's particularly a problem if you're on GitHub, which a lot of folks are. Uh, currently, there's no way to have a private bug report to a public repo. Mm. So you know, um, and yeah, uh, something that's fact, got sensitive information involved, like something like a like a vulnerability, you might want to actually pass to the maintainer. Exactly in a secret manner so that it doesn't get public and they can actually fix it before it becomes a right. deeper vulnerability. What are the workarounds right. for that? Have a different bug tracker for there, security There's actually a thousand ways to do it. We don't <laughs> care which way. Just That's what the badge is for. Well, I know, That's but it seems like there should be like one true way, shouldn't there? It should be easier than some t- two. One more protocol. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of the one true way. Um, I, I think there are things we step back and what is actually required uh, there are projects, by the way, uh, Sigwin has this interesting policy where they forbid public uh, private discussions of any kind. That includes vulnerabilities. What? If you're going to report something, mm. it must be public, and there it is. Huh. Now, I'm not necessarily a fan of that, but they are sure clear about it. And okay. Never going to get a back best practices badge. Well, you know what? The bet for the best practices badge, we don't say it has to be private. You just have okay. to have a way to report it. Oh. Uh, so, uh, but, but the, the problem. I think most people, and I think reasonably so, I, certainly on all my projects, I prefer that you, you know, send stuff to me privately, but then you got to tell people how to do that. And that's okay. Um, yeah. I think one true way was probably the wrong way to phrase it. What I meant to say is there, there, there should be a happy path. Like there should be an easy path for everybody to get there. I and it seems like saying, well, there's 10,000 different ways you get this done is like, well, well, you know, which way should I do? <laughs> Well, now, of course, um, I will, I guess I'm going to reveal the grand secret, which isn't actually secret at all, which is um, in process of doing this, we've actually been contacting other repos. For example, um, GitHub doesn't support private reports on public uh, repos. Uh, So we've actually contacted them and specifically asked them and put on their uh, on their on their own issue tracker. Hey, could you please add this functionality? Mm-hmm. Obviously, GitHub isn't required to do that, but we're making sure that they're aware of that. Uh, Savannah, which is where a lot of the older, uh, the, a lot of the GNU-based projects, you pull up a Linux distro, 
it's going to have a lot of projects that are actually run off Savannah. Uh, Savannah has HTTPS on the project pages, but not on the repos. What? <laughs> so <laughs> we're, we're, we're talking with them right now. So, so I agree with you that for some of this stuff, clearly need to fix it once, but uh -huh. we're actually already pursuing that as well. And the process of making these badges, the badge and the criteria, um, the pro projects actually, we, we were actually alerted to that um, by the projects themselves that, hey, we want to do this. Here's a, so is, there are ways to do it now. And we're working with projects to make things better for everybody. Uh, but, you know, you can figure out a way to get people to send you private messages. You know, here's an email, here's a little website just for this purpose, you know, uh, whatever. But uh, there mm -hmm. are ways you can do it now. And we're working on making it better for everybody. Just to answer my own question a little bit, and we've covered a few of these, but the Linux kernel, as you said, is uh, badged up. Node.js, curl, as we mentioned in the intro, GitLab, and of course, OpenSSL. One thing that was interesting, you can see the entire list of projects on the website, which we'll have linked up in the show notes. There are, are 182 projects in the index, but only 22 of those are passing. So that tells yep. me it either takes a while or it's hard. Or uh, maybe you can tell us why so many are still not quite there yet. Well, um, the criteria we created, we, as I said, we, we talked to a lot of folks. And so um, it's basically what do most projects do for each one? But, but here's the challenge. If you identify what uh, a bunch of criteria that each of which most projects do, and then you say, hey, you've got to do them all. Oftentimes, what people find is they do almost all of them, except for these few. And um, we've actually been tracking those. I actually recently posted um, an analysis of the projects which are close but not quite making it uh, to figure out what were the ones that were most missed. Um, so let me list those that are kind of the most missed ones. Um, and you know, we we take feedback and we are we basically plan to update the criteria every year. And uh, we actually have an intent to add higher levels in the future. But right now we're just you know that basic what we call the passing level. Um, the most missed uh, in terms of the criteria were tests are added, which is basically as you add functionality, you add tests. Uh, the second most uh, missed was HTTPS. Um, mm. uh, and uh, there were some others about uh, crypto certs, uh, vulnerability reporting, uh, basically tell us how to report vulnerabilities. And, you know, that's, uh, uh, I, I should come, you know, for the tests are added, could we reduce their criteria? We could, but should we? Really, if you add new functionality, shouldn't you be adding new tests? Um, we're not mandating 100% coverage or anything. We're just, you know, keep improving. For HTTPS, if folks want HTTPS, um, uh, go to Let's Encrypt. They'll give you a, a cert for free. Um, for vulnerability reporting, that's one sentence on a readme in, on, you know, on your project page. Um, you know, uh, you know, basic and another one that's common is knowing just the basics about secure design and common errors. And that's really just, you know, knowing kind of the basic principles, you know, uh, such as from Salzer and Schroeder and knowing things like the OWASP top 10, what they are, how to counter them. Um, they aren't hard to do, but they're the sort of thing there. Oh, wait, we're, you know, uh, and we, while we could back off on those things, no one is actually suggesting that we should. It's just that there's a number of projects that don't meet those sorts of things. And so what we're trying to do is help, pro instead of changing the criteria, we're trying to help the projects actually meet them, which is going to be good for everybody. All right, best to take a quick break here real quick. Um, when we come back, we have a couple questions, I guess, mainly around, not, not so much just the, the motivations, but also maybe how they maintain. You know, for example, if, if someone gets to 100% and they get the badge and all that good stuff and they prove they're certified and they follow these best practices. I'm curious on the, the follow-up, the, you know, kind of the checks and balances over the years, how that, how that works out. But uh, we'll take this break and we come back to that. 
every Saturday morning, we ship an email called Changelog Weekly. It's our editorialized take on what happened this week in open source and software development. It's not generated by a machine. There's no algorithms involved. It's me, it's Jared, hand curating this email, keeping up to date with the latest headlines, links, videos, projects, and repos. And to get this awesome email in your inbox every single week, head to changelog.com slash weekly and subscribe. So we're back with David A. Wheeler, and we're talking about uh, this this great badge initiative to show off the best practices of core infrastructure out there. Obviously, we're as an industry, we're blindsided by Heartbleed, so something had to be done, and this is obviously a great initiative. Um, but David, in, in the side chat here we had before in our break, I'm kind of curious about the the motivations, right? So if someone's trying to do this with uh, the best practices, they're not just trying to get a badge. What's what's the motivation for this? What are they trying to show off that they actually follow the best practices? Can you help break that down a little bit more clearly? Sure. I, I think really with the badge is all about helping projects identify what are those you know key best practices that are going to help them be successful, produce good results, and, and also for the u- potential users of that software, help them figure out, gee, which projects are doing well versus the ones that are kind of in trouble or, or kind of dodgy. Uh, so really, I would strongly encourage any open source software project, go uh, go to the uh, bestpractices.coreinfrastructure.org site, uh, click on get a badge and get a badge for your open source project. Um, this is for everyone, not not big everyone. or not small, just everyone. Everyone, because because the the whole point is, hey, there's just somebody probably depends on the software that your uh, that uh, your project develops. So for somebody, you're important, and in fact, for most projects, uh, people often have no idea how many other people really depend on that software, and. I, th- I think most, almost everybody, if you're involved in an open source project, you're not there to produce crap. You're there to try to make something that's useful and helpful. And you want to do that by uh, doing the right things. Well, what are those right things? What are the things that are more likely to make your project successful? So uh, I've emphasized the badge because it's a convenient shorthand, but really the goal isn't get a badge. The goal is do things that are going to help you succeed. And by you know, talking to everybody that we can, you know, getting that uh, that experience from projects that are both old and new, uh, people who've studied it. Um, you know, what are the things that are really kind of those fundamental things? And then from there, we've distilled it down to that to a uh, set of these are the things you should be doing. And you know, by by getting a badge, uh, not only are you showing your users, hey, we're on track, but in fact, you're helping make your project better uh, for. Uh, for the future. Mm. And on the consumer side of that, the benefit is once these badges, you know, get to be uh, in such numbers that you come to expect them, at least on certain projects, you can use that as an indicator of, if not the quality of the project, because there's other things, you can look at the code coverage, the uh, what's the code scoring system where they have like A pluses and B minuses and whatnot. Well, there's um, several of them. The code coverage with uh, statement or branch coverage is a pretty common measure. Yeah, exactly. There's all sorts of measures. That's what these badges are kind of for, is to give a high-level view of what's going on. Are the dependencies out of date? Ways that you can proxy an idea about quality. I think with this one, you know, maybe you can't tell the quality of the project, but you can at least tell how serious they are. Um, if they're not just trying to apply best practices, but they're actually going after, uh, you know, they want to have a badge that shows off that they're trying to go after best practices. So hopefully we get to a point where it's something that we can look at and say, oh, okay, this is a, a plus one for this project. Right. And a lot of these uh, criteria really are about, you know, helping you uh, go in the right direction. So, you know, the, the challenge, and I'm, I'm a big fan of static analyzers and code coverage and so on. They can only tell you the current state. Um, that's not a problem. That's a good thing. But it doesn't mean, for example, you know, I actually talked to an open source project. Um, oh, I'm not sure I should, uh, I, I should pull them out like this, but, you know, it's widely used. There's no issue tracker. They have no idea what problems they need to work with because they have to keep hunting through the old emails and the mailing list trying to figure out what to do now. Mm. Um, that's just sad. Mm. You know, we've we've got version control systems, we've got issue trackers. You know, we've got all these tools. Please go use them. <laughs> your life, will, <laughs> your your life will be better for it. And it, it's that sort of thing where, yes, just following 
just doing these certain things doesn't make your uh, code into uh, magic gold, but you can at least avoid some of the crazy problems and help set it on a good path. So if the, if the goal of this began with the blind setting of, of Heartbleed and obviously creating a list of best practices and uh, prov- providing a way for open source projects to self-initiate and go and volunteer to follow them, get a badge, and then get to passing or at least uh, you know, their progress level into passing, I'm curious about the, the lifespan of this. You know, are you, is there a committee? Is there people who are keeping these projects in check? How do you know once they have achieved a certain passing level, they actually maintain the best practices? How does that work? Well, there's actually several things. And uh, probably before going into that, probably should uh, talk a little bit about how you get a badge in the first place, because I think that'll, that'll help kind of level set stuff. Um, so to get a badge, basically somebody from the project clicks on get a badge. And they fill in basically a form. Now, it's, it's basically one of these little, you know, click on, you know, did I meet, did I not meet? Uh, for uh, some of them, you need to, you know, for almost all of them, you can justify and some of you have to justify. Um, as much as we can, we want to automate this. Uh, we've already automated a number of things because there's actually a lot of these questions you can answer in many cases. Uh, we're particularly, if you're on GitHub, we can tell certain things right away. We can look at the repo and fill in some information. For some things, it's just, you know, gee, uh, my, our AI isn't quite up to the task of handling that yet. But even just one of the things that we have automated now, we can quickly determine, hey, you meet, you didn't meet, uh, and kind of go from there. Um, the current plan is to do an update of these criteria every year. Um, I mean, current, we're, we're targeting January. So basically, at each, each year, we'll have some adjustments. And that means that you'll need to go back and at least update your entry every year. Uh, and in that process, that will force the automatic evaluation. Technically, I guess the badge is good for a year, but uh, you don't have to redo, all, redo the work. It's not a lot of work. It only takes about an hour on average to... Uh, to get the information and that's assumes that your project's already in order obviously if you're not doing any testing um the problem isn't that gee i don't i have to click on unmet for uh for the testing the problem is you need tests <laughs> that one's a little harder to go get yeah you, you know what we're we actually uh, people are kind of surprised with her we actually don't mandate a coverage level i'm just gonna ask that yeah instead what we focused on do you have a test framework and are you working on getting better uh, for some projects, actually, test coverage is kind of tricky. Um, Greg KH and I had a lot of interesting conversations. Uh, the Linux kernel folks, for example, have the interesting problem that they have a lot of drivers, which practically nobody has the hardware. So it's really, really hard to do coverage testing with real hardware when you don't have the real hardware. And yeah, you can do simulations, but that tests the simulators, not the hardware. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead, what we really focused in it on is you know, have you started and are you going in the right direction? Um, now, we, I, I mentioned earlier, we do actually hope to have higher levels of badges. And then I think we are uh, almost certainly going to have a coverage requirement. But I, I think, to be honest, we were kind of a little surprised. There's a, so many projects which aren't really doing the fundamentals that uh, right now we're kind of much more focused on getting people to the point where you, know, you have tests, you have a test framework. You're adding tests to add functionality. You have HTTPS. Um, you, know, you know about designing and you know, uh, secure software. You know about you know, the common kinds of mistakes that people make and how to counter them. And you know, right now, that's kind of been our focus uh, until people are kind of more set. And then, um, and, and then we can work on uh, those higher levels. Yeah. Two thoughts there. The first one is the easiest way to get 100% code coverage is just to have a single test that asserts true. So obviously you can, <laughs> you, you can fake that pretty right. easily. Thing right. two is when you get to a certain level of coverage, uh, you start to uh, determine, or it's a harder time to determine what is and what is not a best practice because there's way more dissension and what different developers think is appropriate test coverage. So I assume that as you got to that phase, you'll have a lot more uh, argumentation or debate about what should and should not be required. Yeah, I mean, and it also depends on how uh, how critical their software is. I mean, I'm yeah. certainly not against code coverage. The uh, the badge app itself, as I mentioned, it's open source. It's a project. Oh, I probably should mention right offhand. Yes, we get our own badge. 
<laughs> you got to get mean, your own badge, right? Absolutely. You don't got your own badge. Just like go oh. on home. Just go home. Exactly. I, I think it would be ridiculously hypocritical if we don't get our own badge. <laughs> um, but we actually, but we do a whole lot of practices. For example, we have code coverage. I think last I checked, it was something at ninety eight percent. You know, we we do. You know, we uh, we use Circle CI and uh, you know check our builds and so on. Uh, run the automated tests. You know, so I'm certainly not opposed to, to coverage testing. But I, I think you're right. You know what? I think 80 and 90% for most software is, you know, kind of, you know, you should be at least getting that. Uh, mm-hmm. Whether or not you run all the way to 100%, I think that I, there's nothing terribly wrong with getting 100%, but oftentimes those last tests aren't necessarily worth the effort um, because the code coverage can hide some other problems. Just just because it ran the test doesn't mean that you're really in a good situation. There are other kinds of, of uh, testing that you should do. Give us a quick, while we're here, let's talk about the application itself. Give us a quick technical breakdown of what it is, how it works, maybe the technologies involved and uh, who sure. helped you build it. It's basically fill in, a, the, the basic notion is fill in a form. Right. Um, <laughs> so it's a web application, you fill in a form. And so we really were trying to make things as simple and as straightforward as possible. Uh, now, it's not quite fill in a form because once you give us the project URL and repo URL, we actually go out and try to fill in some of the form automatically. Um, and even to the point where if we can determine with high probability that in fact something isn't true, we don't care what the human says, it's not true. Uh, so um, so, it's a, so in some cases, we will override what the human claims. Um, that's it. It's fundamentally a form entry. So we're using Ruby on Rails, uh, which is bog standard and pretty darn uh, common uh, way to implement um, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, an application with, uh, you know, forms and, and databases and that sort of thing. Um, probably one of the more interesting, we have, of course, you know, automated tests. As I mentioned, it's, um, you know, it's near 100% uh, coverage. Um, and in fact, well, one of the more interesting things from my vantage point is, of course, we want to make sure that ours is secure. Um, so we actually have on the website, on our, our page, a little description about how we make sure that the thing is secure. Uh, so, for example, we make sure uh, we we tr- we try not to store anything that's not public anyway. Just you, know, you, you can't be uh, you can't reveal what's not you're not hiding. Uh, there is some slightly sensitive information. We do have email addresses of, of people. We do have uh, if they're not using a GitHub login, uh, we do have some passwords. But we hash the pa- we use iterated salted hashes uh, for the passwords. So even if you get our database, you don't get. Uh, the actual straight-up password. Uh, and, you know, we just try to apply various sort of rational things. You know, Ruby's, of course, memory safe, so we don't have uh, those kinds of problems. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we apply, you know, the security thing, uh, the uh, typical security uh, recommendations on uh, various kinds of hardening things. Um, uh, we use four different static analyzers. Uh, check the uh, Ruby or the and the JavaScript also, because there's some JavaScript on it. Um, you know, including Breakman, which is a very nice little static analyzer for if you're doing Ruby on Rails. Um, and so, you know, basically, we're not really depending on any one thing. We're actually using a suite of tools and approaches, um, you know, any, any one of which helps and the co- combination together makes it much more likely that when we put something out, it's much more likely to just work. Very good. Well, uh, any Final thoughts or closing words on the best practices badge program before we get into our closing questions? I think main, the main thing, that if, if you don't remember anything else from this conversation, what I would say is, please, if you're involved in an open source project, please pop over to uh, bestpractices.coreinfrastructure.org. Go click on get, a ba- get your badge now and go get yourself a badge. It doesn't take that long. It doesn't cost anything. Um, and it basically will help you figure out, hey, are, is your project in good shape? And if it's not in good shape, it'll help you identify exactly what needs what needs fixing. And then you can go work in fixing it. And once you've done that, you can get yourself a badge. And as we talked about earlier, you know, the, the badge is a nice shorthand, but really the goal isn't the badge. The goal is to get projects in good shape. We don't want more heart bleeds. Mistakes are going to happen, but we want those mistakes to be unusual leakages after doing all the right things, not while there were some basic things I should have been doing. 
And that's really what we want to get to the point of where we want to get to the point where projects are in great shape. They are ready to go. They've got, uh, they're firing on all cylinders. And uh, uh, that's what I'd love to see out of this. And for those out there who are a little afraid of forms like I am, I sometimes don't like to fill them out. I like to peek behind them if I can. And when I can't, I just get a little scared. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you, if you want to peek behind, the, the code for everything is, is on GitHub. So there is, there, there is no secret there on what the form is. We actually have a separate page on GitHub with just the criteria. If you want to see kind of what you're up, what, what you need to fill in. But you know what? A lot of people just, gee, I don't know what the criteria. I'll just, I'll just click on get my badge now and get started. And you, you don't have to do it instantly. You can, you know, can fill a little bit and say, oh man, I, need, I don't have any tests. I guess yeah, that's, I what I was gonna, that's the point I was trying to get to is, um, was being able to see the criteria and yep. uh, you have a great doc in, uh, in the GitHub repo that, yep. you know, you can read that. It's like a blog post. If you just want to, if you just want to know what it takes before you even fill out the form, you know, or, or get started, you know, just kind of seeing behind the, you know, the being behind the veil, I guess, so to, so to say. Um, yep. So I wanted to plug your criteria dot uh, markdown file because it's extensive. It's, um, it's got a lot of great information in there. It's very exhaustive, and it's also obviously in Git, so you can uh, contribute back if, uh, if there's a misspelling or a typo or whatever. You know, there's you can easily see this information. Yeah, we we take pull requests. In fact, we've got an issue tracker. We we take pull requests. We've uh, uh, people have proposed all sorts of. In, in fact, the criteria themselves. You know, it's not just me. Uh, you know, we've gotten comments back from all sorts of folks, and I think at this point. Generally, when people have issues, it's not that they think the criteria are wrong. It's that, oh, I'm not doing it. Well, that's actually in some, I mean, that's sad, of course. You don't have an issue tracker. What's wrong with you? Um, but in, in a sense, it's good because it means that the criteria are doing your, their job. They're helping people identify those, you know, those basics that people are generally doing, but maybe you're not. We may have covered it, but uh, for those out there who are, they're thinking this is great i i didn't know about this ah, and they want to be involved in some way shape or form whether it's you know the obvious one is that they're involved in their project submitting um to get a badge but mm -hmm. uh, let's say they want to support this how what are the best ways for the open source community to step in and support you and support the linux foundation in this initiative um i think well, the most obvious one really is if you're involved, in, as I mentioned earlier, if you're involved in a project, please go work on getting a badge. If you are, if there's a project you're depending on that you're not currently involved in, but they're missing some criteria, uh, go help them. Um, you know, there, I'm sure there are projects that you're depending on that uh, could really need your help. You know, if they don't have a test suite, you know what? Uh, help them, help them make one. Uh, if they've, uh, you know, you know, or, you know, things so I, I didn't mention, you know, different projects have different problems. Older projects often have the problems that they don't have test suites, newer projects, which think they're open source often tend to not have a license, which means they're not open source at all. And so, you know, help, help them identify and fix those problems. Um, I guess a third way would be with the, um, uh, project with the whole uh, badging project itself. Uh, we would love to get feedback, improvements, suggestions, um, you know, I, I don't we we don't want to change the criteria willy nilly because uh, people you know spend time answering those. But certainly, if they need to be clarified, uh, that's great. If they want to actually change them, add new ones or delete ones, that's fine. Although we want to do that much more slowly, particularly adding new criteria, we don't want to do that more than annually. Um, but uh, that's but but we can and we expect to. Uh, but we're going to need people's help because we want to make sure that we have everybody's viewpoints, uh, not just one person's. So hopefully that'll give you at least a, uh, you know, there is, there is room for lots of people to contribute in a lot of different ways. Yeah. We'll definitely link up the criteria markdown file because that's interesting to me to uh, just be able to breeze that on your own just to look at it. And I like how you said to, uh, if you're not involved in a project and you depend on a project that, hasn't applied for a badge or doesn't have the badge or doesn't have tests, then obviously step in or reach out to the maintainer and ask them how you can help to, you know, spread the word about, uh, about this initiative. So that makes a lot of sense to me. But uh, one question since uh, David, since you're 
a, a listener of the show, you may know that when we tail off the show, we like to ask uh, about somebody who's influenced you. And we often call it the programming hero or, or just hero in general. And I'm kind of curious um, who might be your hero because, you know, you're a child you know, the 80s, you, you were doing lots of cool <laughs> stuff way back when. So you've got an expansive history of, of who may have influenced you over the years. So if you had to narrow it down to one, though. Who might be your hero? Uh, I've got several I'm, I could point to, but I guess if I if I only am allowed to use one, uh, I guess I would point out Robert Dewar, who uh, some people may not be know may may uh, not know. Unfortunately, he died not that long ago. Uh, but he's done all sorts of cool things. I mean, he was an academic. I uh, did a lot of advocacy for open source software, um, and he started an open source company, uh, which is still thriving. Uh, but uh, the area that I remember him specifically at is as a, a compiler author. He wrote uh, several interesting uh, compilers. Uh, way back when, he actually wrote uh, the Gannett, uh, uh, the GCC Ada compiler. And at the time he wrote it, there was this sort of set of, you know, here is how you do this sort of compiler. Uh, you know, gee, it's, you know, this sort of comp compilation work takes a while. So you've got to have, you know, all these complicated uh, caches. And uh, after he talked to a lot of folks, he worked on a system where he kind of blew away the conventional wisdom. Uh, instead of having this complicated uh, caching system that required really a whole lot of complicated error-prone code to keep uh, straight, he basically threw away all of that and instead uh, worked very, very carefully on a hand-optimized Lexer. Uh, now, it was a pain, the, it was a pain to make that uh, hand-optimized Lexer, but it was a little tiny piece of the compiler. And by optimizing one little piece, he managed to eliminate a huge raft of code, and the whole compiler was much, much, much faster than uh, anything had, that had been around before. So ba basically, by looking carefully at the problem, he figured out, oh, here's a much better way of doing the trade-offs than had been done before. And you know, he ended up with something that was tons faster, much smaller, what's not to like. Oh, it's more reliable too. Always gonna love that, but uh, that's that's good stuff there. So, David, it's it's absolutely been a pleasure to have you on the show. I know that uh, having a listener on the show is is a bonus for sure, and uh, and then having not only a listener on the show but someone who shared uh, a, a ping and and uh, shared their story with us on there. Obviously, we we track that quite well. So, listeners out there, if you're you're listening to this and you're thinking, man, I love this show, I want to suggest a topic or you know, maybe even suggest myself to come on. Um, go to github.com slash the changelog slash ping. There's issues there. Submit one. Look over some. Help us out to, to say hello to people or give feedback on different ideas. We love, obviously, we love that. But, uh, David, this core infrastructure initiative is, is a great thing. I'm glad that the Linux Foundation and the foundation you work with uh, are doing this. And this is great work to be doing for the open source uh, community. Um, but uh, that is it for this week. Thanks, Dave, for coming on the show and listeners for tuning in. But uh, let's call this one done and say goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks. <laughs>